Amen. You guys dig that last song? Rejoice. So wait, last, last, yeah, I won't sing it, don't worry. But um, last year when we went, uh, the leadership and, and some, uh, really there's a group of about 20 of us from Heritage went up to the Resurgence Conference up in uh, Seattle and took in some teaching by a really broad selection of pastors, if you will, from, from guys like James McDonald, Matt Chandler, Mark Driscoll, Greg Laurie, uh, Rick Warren, several guys. And um, the band where we were did that song. It's written by a guy named Dustin Kinsrew, and it's a tremendous worship album. I highly recommend it. Um, but they had this guy, like they had their drummer, they had this guy, then they had this other guy that just had two giant drums. That's it. And he wailed on those things. Like it was just boom, 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 boom. And you, it was just infectious. You just couldn't help but get sucked into the worship. And it was just awesome. So uh, that's a great song, man. I, I love songs that we just get to just declare. The voice is just ah, rejoice. That's what heaven's going to be like. Amen. Man, when our king comes back, you think you're going to shout? Man, you think you're going to celebrate? You think we're not going to be blown away of, at the majesty the, I mean, there, there's so much about Jesus that, that we are sort of confined with our own imaginations, our own background, even things that have been sort of defined and portrayed for us with regards to even little coloring sheets that we did in Sunday school as kids. But when he comes back as the king of all creation in all of his glory, it is going to blow our minds. It's going to blow our minds when we see how majestic and how great he is. Oh, Lord, to that end, we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We long for the day that you come, that our faith is made sight, that these frail bodies are tossed aside, that there's no more struggle with sin, with shame, with guilt, with death, that, God, we get to put on the immortal and that we get to come face to face before you and hear those amazing words, well done, good and faithful servant. Oh, Lord, we tremble at the thought. And so, God, we pray, Lord, that even now as we open your word, I pray specifically, God, you would guide even my words, Lord. Would give me, Lord, by your spirit, the ability to be faithful to your word. I pray, God, your spirit would be our teacher, would move in this place. You would guide the very words that are shared and that you would teach your people. And Lord, if me and my frailty teach anything that is not in accordance with your will, Lord, may it be forgotten before anyone leaves this place. But Lord, the things of your word, Father, may they find fertile soil in our souls. May they produce great fruit. May we be faithful with what you invest in us through your word. And we just ask, God, that you would bring fruit from these very things as we bow before you. And as always, Lord, we pray, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh, my King and my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. First Corinthians 16, gang, we're going to finish it today, which means we better get going. But we're going to finish this today. 
um, myself with 25 people from the church tomorrow morning, we actually depart from here to make our way to Israel for almost two weeks. So we're really excited about that. We covet your guys' prayer. I know you're like, oh, pray for the people that are going to Israel. But anytime that you make a journey to a Middle East country or any kind of journey, I just, uh, it, it can be a difficult thing at times. And you know, the Middle East is sort of the Middle East, you know? So um, just pray for us in that. Pray for me. I'll be honest with you, I'm a little intimidated by this trip to some degree because I've never been. And so to walk to some of these sites, I, I, I feel like I'm going to be sitting there with my jaw on the floor the whole time, and then I got to actually turn around and teach. Um, but but I, I was just sort of encouraged as I was thinking it through this week. It was like God spoke to me. He's like, Jeff, oh, Jeff, you poor self-obsessed thing. They're not going because of you. <laughs> no one's going to come back and say, and then Jeff said this, and then Jeff said this, and then Jeff said this. No, they're going to come back and say, we saw this, and we saw this. So really, I'm just going to go, hey, Israel people that are here, I'm pretty much the whole time just going to go, um, there it is. <laughs> That'll pretty much be our tour. Um, but I'm looking forward. I'll be back with you. I won't be here, obviously, next Sunday, but I will be back the next. We're only going to miss one Sunday. Um, and just looking forward for what the Lord might put on my heart to be able to come back and share with you guys um, from there. And then the week after that, we will start 2 Corinthians. So uh, looking forward to that. But today we're going to finish 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Um, kind of the conclusion of the matter. And here in this text, in this last chapter in particular, um, we get a real window into the pastor's heart for his church here. As again, remember, Paul is writing here a letter to the church in Corinth, a church that five years previously he himself had started and had planted. And so now he's writing back to them to address some issues. They've gotten off track big time. And so much of the letter is corrective in nature. It's a lot of, come on, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? But now here at the end, we get to see Paul's heart for his church. And, and remember, Paul refers to this church. He, he refers to himself in comparison with this church. He calls himself um, their spiritual father. And so there's a sense in which, as we read this letter, you could picture, if you will, a father talking to a teenage son who he desires to see grow in maturity, grow in stature, grow in strength, grow in the gospel. And so he's leaning into his son and speaking words of wisdom that he desires to see produce fruit in his very life. But also, because this is more than just a letter to a church in Corinth. This is the words of the very Holy Spirit of God himself to us. And God is our Father and we are his children. So in that same way, we can picture God leaning into his children, to his church here at Heritage, that he desires to see grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ and grow in his grace. And he's leaning in and sharing his heart with us. And he does this right off the bat, talking first of all about everyone's favorite topic, money. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 1 says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So Paul starts off his conclusion here by talking about giving, tithing, money. It's a topic that in church tends to get people really uncomfortable. It's not exactly a 
top 10, very seldom will you see someone's favorite sermon be one that was about giving. And that's usually not a favorite sermon for any pastor to give. Um, A lot of this is because we've seen so many abuses in the past. We see the snake oil salesman on TV. We want to set ourselves apart from this. We don't want to associate ourselves with that. And so sometimes there can be a hesitancy to talk about giving in the church. Sometimes it's awkward and difficult because sometimes, let's face it, we're holding on a little too tight. Sometimes this is God's way of prying idols out of the hands of people who are depending more on money than they are on the very spirit of God. And so whenever God's removing idols from the hearts and hands of his people, that can be an awkward and difficult situation. And then sometimes, as is often the case here, it's just we fear um, what will people think of us. Um, Are are people going to think that we're just in it for the money and and are people going to think poorly of me? And that's often the case with myself. I've not always led well in this area. In fact, I can think of the number of times that we've talked about money and giving at Heritage in our almost six years of existence now, probably three times maybe, other than passing comments here and there. Um, and, and a lot of that is on me because as I've been growing as a leader, there's a lot of times I don't want to talk about these things because I don't want people to feel bad about me and think, oh, Jeff, now here it comes. He's trying to reach his hand into our pockets and, and all these things. But the reality of the situation is that this is a, a key component of Christian living. Now, it's not the center And so it shouldn't be something that we talk about at Heritage all the time because it is not the center of the existence of the church. And we've seen churches where this is the case. We can find television complete channels devoted to them, can we not? And it's unbelievable how we can see ministries that seem to exist for nothing more than the gaining of that which the scriptures warn us about over and over and over And see messages given that say, give us your money and God will pour out blessings upon you. And it's almost like they're feeding a desire for money, the very thing that the Bible warns us will damage and destroy our own soul. This happens a lot in Christianity. So it shouldn't be the center. We should not talk about money and giving here amongst ourselves all the time. We shouldn't obsess about those things, but it does need to be addressed, particularly when we come across it in the scriptures. We want the entire counsel of God. If I was to be skipping over passages that I don't want to teach, then you're not going to receive the whole counsel of God from his word. And let's face it, we can see places throughout our country in Christianity now where people have picked and chosen which texts they want to apply, which ones they don't, and it tends to get us in a lot of trouble. And so we teach what the word says, and we can do that boldly because this is God's word. But at the same time, um, it's a difficult topic. But I get to teach this particular point, and this is just the first little part of the sermon here, but but I want to be very clear because we haven't talked about this a lot. Um, I get to talk about this with a lot of boldness and confidence here because to a great degree, I'm preaching to the choir. This is a very generous, giving church that God has blessed. We've never been in a situation as a church where we've struggled financially. God has always blessed this church, and we pray he'll be faithful to do so. So this is, should not come across as a scolding by any means whatsoever. This is more of like, yep, that's what we do. This is who we are as Christians And so Paul here in his conclusion comes to the church and says, hey, collect something from the first day, gather it together based on what you make as each one prospers, and we're going to carry this offering to Jerusalem. So he's talking about giving. Now, so Christians should give. 
What Paul doesn't say specifically is how much. We, we don't like gray areas. We like formulas. We like exactly how much should be. You just tell me, I'll take care of it. Paul doesn't really do that in Scripture. Now, you might say, well, yeah, but what about the tithe, Jeff? Doesn't Heritage believe in tithing? Well, when, when people in church circles talk about tithing, they're usually talking about that with regards to, it's an Old Testament principle given to the Jewish people that tends to talk about this, this first tenth, so 10%. When most people talk about tithing, they're talking about 10% based on real biblical principles that they were to bring the first 10% of theirs to the church, to the, the temple actually in the Old Testament. And so if you're saying, does the church believe in tithing? That's still sort of a trick question. The answer to that would be sort of not really. Because if, if in asking that, you're saying that shouldn't every believer give 10%. I don't believe that's an accurate formula within the scriptures here. In fact, if you add up what the people of Israel were really commanded to bring with regards to their offerings, their gifts, all of these things, it actually adds up to more like 20 to 25%. You're like, whoa, let's go home now. Are you saying, Jeff, that we should give 25%? Oh, I'm not saying that either. But what I am saying is that what I am going to say is that the Bible does give us some very clear guidelines that we should use and apply to our own selves and our own hearts with regards to how we give. The Bible's very clear about four specific principles that should guide how the church gives, how the people of the church give. Number one, we should give to God primarily. And what I mean by that is first. Um, he talks about the fact the first day of the week, even in the Old Testament, it speaks of the first fruits. And the idea is, is that as the harvest in the fields was growing up, they would go and harvest that first tenth, if you will, those, those first fruits, and then they would bring that to the temple and offer that in thanksgiving to the church, or to, excuse me, to the Lord to say thank you for the blessing for the harvest that they were about to take. So it went to God first. It wasn't an add-on. It wasn't a, well, if we have enough left over, we're going to bring some to God. No, instead, it was brought to God first and primarily. And, and the reason for this is New Testament principles with regards to this as well. Jesus taught that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so finances, the thing about money that is important is because for most of us, especially in our society, money does give us the ability to gauge where our hearts are in many different places. That's why scripture warns about it so much. Even when it talks about things like it's easier for a, a, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God because what we can find ourselves so easily doing is depending upon our own resources rather than depending on God. And that's what we are called to do is to depend on God. And so that's why there's this principle whereby we come to God with our offerings first. It's a step of faith in his provision. It's a declaration of allegiance and dependence to God. And also it's recognition about the fact that really we're just returning to God what is his to begin with. The scriptures say that every good and perfect gift comes down from our father of lights. And so God is the one who gave us that which we have. You would say, well, not really, man. I worked hard to get where I am. Yeah, you worked hard growing up in a country that gives you the opportunities of education and job and career. You were given the intelligence. I mean, it's by the grace of God that you weren't born with different abilities that would prevent you from being able to do what you do right now. And I mean, just this room right here, we are in the, the upper, I mean, the, the, the portions of the world that have the kind of opportunities that we have in this room, they're minuscule. It is by the grace of God that we were even born in this place. 
And we understand that every blessing comes from God. Our ability to do hard work comes from God. The drive he's given us to do hard work comes from God. There's a lot of hardworking people right now that don't have jobs. The very fact that we have a job is a gift from God. And so when we tithe or when we give to the Lord, we are giving back to him in recognition and thanks for what he has done in our lives. And so we're to give, the Bible teaches us primarily. We give to God of the first fruits, not the leftovers. And it's, a, it's really a question of priorities with regards to us. So it's a way of checking our own hearts there. Number two, the scriptures say we should give regularly. Giving was to be a habitual pattern in the life of the believer. It was something that was a common part of the believer's lifestyle. And so too, we should have regular patterns of giving with regards to our own finances for the work of the ministry. Number three, we should give sacrificially. And this means different things to different people. Paul states it here in this passage, um, as he may prosper. You, You might remember the story, it's in the book of Luke chapter 21 when they were in the temple and the people were coming in and bringing their offerings and there was a widow who came in and she only gave two mites. You remember that story? That'd be the equivalent of as the basket comes by here, there's a widow in the congregation who puts two pennies into the basket and it goes on past. And Jesus said of her that she gave more than anyone else because she gave out of her lack. That that was a sacrifice. As small as that amount was, that was all she had. She gave sacrificially to God. And so we are called to give sacrificially. But we do that, though, cheerfully and confidently. Um, The scriptures say in Malachi 3.10, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, And see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is more need. Now this is the passage that the snake oil church pastors we see on TV use where they say, the more you give, the more God's going to give you. And so they tell people to bring money to the church in order to get more money themselves. But that's idolatry. That's using God to increase your own finances. You're not giving to honor God, you're giving to profit self. That is a dangerous path to go down. So so we give sacrificially, but in such a way as to honor God is the way that we do that. And we do it finally cheerfully. The scripture says God loves a cheerful giver. The scripture says God delights in giving gifts to his own children. And, And even just think, like last week, it was Mother's Day. My kids had made some stuff for their mom and they had cards that they had made themselves for mom and all these things they wanted to give her. And they were so excited to be able to bring this gift to their mother. They were talking to me two days in advance. Okay, dad, let's figure this out now. We're going to lunch, and then should we do it when we get back from lunch? Because I want you to be there when I give it to her. Um, or should we do it in the morning? When should we do this? We want to pl- and they were planning this out for days and so excited to be able to bring their gifts to their mother. And so too, God, God doesn't want us to come to him like, I'm only doing it because I have to. <laughs> no, it is an honor who are we that we can bring a gift to the King and Lord of all creation? It should be an honor in our heart and be based on gratitude in our very spirit because of all that God has done for us. So give cheerfully. But let's be fair about this. Let's talk transparently for just a minute if we can. We haven't had opportunity to do this too much as a church, and I want to I take a moment here to do so. What happens with the money? It's a fair question, right? 
I mean, we should want to know where our money goes, how it gets spent, how is it managed, and all these kinds of things. And we've wanted to be able to do some more stuff with regards to this, and we've had an increasing desire to do this. But um, when our church began, we started out with just 100 people. Um, there was myself and a part-time bookkeeper that was the staff. And if you know me, like, I, I am not the administratively organized person. And then add to that the fact that we sort of incrementally grew just about through every season of our existence. And so for much of our church's existence, we haven't been really organized and structured in such a way that we could take like a budget, for example, and present it to you guys to see how things were being spent and it actually makes sense. Now, now we've always had oversight and we've always had people looking and there's never been impropriety, those sorts of things. But, but at the same time, there's never been the ability, we've just not been organized enough. Uh, if you start out the year with a budget for 100 people and you finish the year with 300 people, then all your budget categories are just busted. And so in all these different places, it looks like your, your spending is way over budget, but it's because the budget was outdated by February. And so that's kind of been the case. And when you get someone like me leading and I'm the one trying to manage all that stuff and then some others as the staff grew, um, we just weren't experts in this. We've not been trained in this and we had not really seen a lot of this in detail in the past, how to manage it. But over the last year, we've really been blessed and grown in some of these areas. Um, this started out with Ed DeVries, our pastor who just, you, you guys know, our children's pastor until just recently. He's actually here. I saw him this morning. Um, he really led the charge with this. He's a very administratively gifted guy about let's get some things like really lined out so we have a budget that makes sense. Um, meeting with accountant, with our accountant and getting structure and what can we do, what can't we do, and how do we manage a lot of those different things and trying to make sure that we get structure in place that presents an accurate picture of what's going on in our church to the people. And then also, recently, we added to our board of directors a guy by the name of John Adams. John is here with his wife right now, and he's a, a successful businessman who's really gifted in these areas as well. And so now, even to this day, we have actually a software system in place where when we spend money, anyone that spends money on behalf of the church, a report every month is compiled with even photos of the receipts and gets emailed to the bookkeeper and another one to him so that oversight happens. So not, not just to be able to say, okay, okay, Sam had a $1,000 budget for, for worship this year. Did he stay within his budget? Well, that was a pipe dream, right? $1,000. But anyway, um, did, did Sam stay within his budget? Well, yes. But, but even more than that, was the spending done that inside the budget within the bounds of what we have allotted that money for? N not did he use the worship money to buy a new car, which he didn't do. Don't worry. Um, so we have finally really good structure and we have solid oversight in place financially here. And now that we have that and we've got gifted men who have helped put together a real accurate, workable budget and, and all these things are finally in place for us. We're not just kind of treading water, hoping not to drown. Um, we actually hope by this end of the year, moving into next year to start releasing like more detailed to have them available on our website where you can go and download actual giving statements that give actual figures so that you, um, that, so that we're operating with complete transparency, but also so that you can at your own uh, um, inclination, go and see how the money at your church is being spent. We feel we want to be really open and transparent. We've seen abuses and we, we want to make sure we're doing everything we can to give you reason even to give with confidence and also to protect people from influences and temptations of sin. 
So it's a good thing to have in place. So we're excited about that. So I don't have a lot of those hard figures now because we're just really sort of starting with, with all of that stuff. But I do want to give you a little bit of an idea what is done with the money that comes to Heritage. If you're a visitor, we appreciate you coming. I'll get back to something better in a minute. But I, I really want to take this opportunity to be able to speak with clarity about this. Um, when, when the money that comes in, how does the money get spent at Heritage? Well, obviously we have four full-time staff pastors. R- right now, technically we have three, but uh, as you guys know, we hired uh, Brent Sisson. Him and his wife will be moving out here from North Carolina right now, actually, in uh, June. So he'll be here at the end of June. So typically we've had four full-time staff pastors. And so we look at that beyond even just a business sense, that those are four families that we're charged with tending and taking care of. So providing insurance and looking out for them. Um, They're given fair wages, though I would say too, the wages given are actually below the average for this particular valley, um, for especially for a church of our size. But but no one don't don't misunderstand that. We're not. No one's feeling under the thumb or pressed. The families of this church, we feel like we are very well tended and we're very thankful for the generosity of this church. But we take that role seriously looking after the families and making sure that we're paying those salaries and that. As well, we have um, one part-time administrative assistant um, who also leads the women's ministry, so she's on staff as well. And then we are bringing on for the summer a full-time but temporary position, someone who's gonna be working as an intern. We just worked some things out with him. He's gonna be interning, if you will, through the summer, works at a local elementary school. They have a summer break. And so he's gonna be helping out with things like family camp and youth trips and, and even helping bridge the gap while we're kind of a man down waiting on our new pastor to come. But it's a, it's a temporary position. Um, and then we have a bookkeeper who is a part-time position as well. Um, in addition to paying salaries, we invest heavily in them Um, and the church invests heavily in me as well, in resourcing and training and making sure that the staff of the church has the tools needed to do the job well. Um, Whether that be going to conferences to be trained, whether that be a book to help them with something, we we feel we don't want to give someone a call and say, this is your job to do, hope you can figure it out, but no, we invest and we want to train and educate um, the people that are here, so we invest heavily in that. Um, We have general administrative costs, whether that be paying for Sunday school curriculum, um, whether that be uh, leadership gatherings. Yesterday morning, for example, we had the huddle group leaders all over at the hub, over where our children's ministry is, and we were over there working with them, um, teaching them with regards to uh, um, uh, biblical gospel-centered counseling, helping our huddle leaders become more trained in that area. And so we'll do things like that, have breakfast, bring people together, or training programs for leaders within the church. Um, there's things like toys in the kids' ministry. I mean, we, we pay rent. We are so blessed to be here at Cascade Christian High School. Um, a church our size should be spending in rent um, some upwards of fifteen, even $20,000 a month to have a facility for a group of people this big to be able to meet in. We pay like a fourth of that. So we are really blessed. And we have a long-term lease with Cascade. Our rent won't go up guaranteed for another seven years, which is an awesome blessing. And they are so generous to us. We're very thankful to be able to work with Cascade. And then we have stuff like, you know, van maintenance, things like that. I mean, it, it just costs money to do business. It costs money to run a nonprofit organization. It costs money to do a church. We're, we're doing everything we can, and we're always looking for opportunities to be able to uh, lower administrative costs. Just this week, we found out if we bundled our phone, we save 50 bucks a month 
sweet, let's do it. So, so we're doing that, and, and now that we're really organized and have some people with that kind of experience in places of influence, uh, we pray that that's only going to get better. But the good news is, is that we've been able to accomplish everything that we've done in the church up until this point with zero debt. We have never, ever been in debt as a church here, ever. And so we're really thankful by the grace of God for that. Also, we give a lot of money away. We don't just teach about giving to the people of the church, but we as a church tithe. So, so we give to support churches. There's a couple of churches that are pastored by friends of ours in uh, Idaho that are smaller churches that we've been privileged to be able to help out in several different situations. There's local churches here we're able to pour out. We host a pastor's breakfast where the pastors and staff come over and we pay for it. We put breakfast on and, and just really pour into and, and, and spend time learning with those guys. Um, it's been an incredible blessing. Heritage has great Um, great relationships with churches all over this valley. We are friends with the other churches in this valley. We're very, very thankful for that. Um, We also support, as you guys know, a sister church in Uganda. I meant to do some slides and I just completely spaced it, but, um, you know, we did the clean water project in Uganda last year and we've got some photos for that. That's gone off like a, uh, it was just an amazing success. There are 55 uh, households in Uganda today that now have filter systems that purify their water from contaminants that didn't have that a year ago and were susceptible to many diseases. And that's thanks to the giving of this particular congregation. Um, the head of that particular project is Susan Casita. She's actually Pastor John Wabwire's daughter. And um, she actually just had a baby. And so that's exciting. Pastor John's first grandson or granddaughter, I forget. But um, um, so she's on leave for a few months. And then we're going to look at starting that back up and going after another 50, 55 houses as well. So we're excited about that. We support that church. We give them the ability to, uh, um, to be able to, to help with their rent. We, we're careful about this. Because we don't want to be like the money bags for that church so that they're always depending on heritage instead of depending on God. That would undo the purpose of tithing, right? So so we're careful about that, but we do a lot to support and help them with regards to rent. And specifically, we give them um, the money that goes to the salary of their assistant pastor. His name's Johnson. And uh, as we've spent time with him for six years now, Johnson is an invaluable resource to that church. Um, He's the guy that just gets things done. And so in order for him to be able to focus on the ministry of that church and work there full time without having to go find work in another city, um, we support that church so that they can keep him there and it increases the effectiveness of that church. So we're excited about that. Um, We give to other local ministries, Young Life, um, the Pregnancy Resource Center, access, on track, and then of course benevolent needs of people within the church and needs that we come across for people from outside the church. So this church is a very, very giving congregation giving to the church and in turn it's a very giving church to the community. Um, And in fact, we believe strongly that in many ways it's the generosity that we've been able to do as a church um, that, that explains some of the blessings that God has given us. And so even when we make financial decisions, are we going to hire another guy? Should we get a building one day? Whatever that is, we've already determined that we will never take on something that prevents us from being able to be generous like this in the future. This is a key, this is like part of who we are. So, so that's something that we will protect Um, But in addition, we're also saving for the future. We're saving for the future. I've talked with pastors before that thought savings accounts for churches were sinful. 
that um, if Jesus was to come back tomorrow and all the money was sitting in the bank, then what was the point of that? Um, but there's a lot of scriptures about saving and about um, planning for the future and about um, just being wise stewards of God's money as well. And so we've been, been able to save. And in fact, since we've gotten greater administrative structure and been able to really fine tune what we're doing, God's really blessed this and your generosity has been really great. When we did the hub, if you guys remember about two years ago and we remodeled that, it was just an empty garage when we got it. And so it took about $115,000 to do that. We didn't even have chairs. We didn't have lamps. We didn't have that stuff. So, so we had to mo- remodel the inside of that and then fill it with the things that we needed to be able to do the work of the ministry. And so at that point, we made a decision because we needed room for our kids to spend half of what our savings account was at that time. So about two and a half years ago, when we opened the hub, our savings account was at about $120,000. About a year ago, it had come back up to close to $250,000. And then this week, I was really pleased to find out that in one year's time, we just this week actually passed the $500,000 mark in our savings account here at the church. So we were really, really excited about that. And you say, well, that's a lot of money. Why are you just sitting on that? Because we have a lot of needs in the future and a lot of things that we feel like God's putting on our heart and we want to be able to plan. Um, If God should bless us, we would love to never have to take on debt if that would be God's will. Um, The hub, for example, we opened that two years ago because we needed more room for kids. It is no longer sufficient for the needs that we have. Those rooms are busting at the seams. And so when we brought Brent, who's going to be moving out here next month, on to be the children's pastor, and we flew him out here to interview, we toured him through there and we said, one of your things you're going to have to figure out right away is space because we're maxed. And the rooms over there, the walls don't even go up to the ceiling. So now you've got rooms full of a lot of kids and you're trying to teach, but it's noisy and it becomes really difficult. So we've got to figure something out, whether that means modular units on the grass area next to it or more rooms here or another suite there or whatever the case may be. We've got to start brainstorming and figuring out something that's going to enable us to more effectively preach the gospel and to accommodate more children as we're still growing. Um, so we've got those sorts of needs. We, have, um, um, we, we also have this growing desire to church plant. Um, the biblical model for a healthy gospel-centered church is that we should be launching out other gospel-centered churches. And so I've had this desire for a long time. It's really been burning in us lately. And we as, a, as an elder and leadership board have been talking about this a lot more lately too. About, okay, so one day, what are we going to do? Like uh, Sam, for example, our worship leader, you guys have been hearing him teach pretty regularly on Wednesday nights a lot now. Um, We're only going to have him most likely, unless God should do something different here, we probably won't have him more than about five years because I I think it's pretty obvious the Lord's growing him up to be a pastor. So what are we going to do with that? And what about in between then? What if we want to plant one next year? What if we have someone rise up? So we have that desire, but also about how to train people. I mean, a lot of the experience, even for my own self, was like, you have your Bible and you have the Holy Spirit, you'll figure it out, go. And so that's great, and God is sufficient, but you end up learning a lot of things the hard way. And so we're really thinking about, okay, we we had two guys in the interview process over this, this new hire come forward and say, man, I just really feel called to pastoral ministry. And so, okay, so if, if they feel the call, they're not ready yet, they're not educated yet, how do we? I mean, it'd, it'd be our responsibility if we're a disciple-making church to raise them up into a place where they're ready to be able to do that. And that's something we haven't really taken on yet as a church. So we have those thoughts. And then just frankly, we just would like to have a building one day. I mean, <laughs> let's just be honest, couch surfing gets old, right? 
You, you can, there's a certain point where you're like, it, it's a blessing to be here. They're very generous to us. Um, but, but our desire is to see heritage exist way longer than I do or than we do. Um, even thinking about denominational churches, especially on the East Coast that I grew up with, where you would see churches that have been around for hundreds of years even. Like that's our desire, that there would be a heritage that far, uh, should the Lord tarry, that would far outlive us. And we think one step towards uh, making that uh, a possibility would be one day having a home. But it takes a lot more money than half a million dollars to do that. I mean, just based our size right here, we talked with people, not because we're doing anything now, but, but we want to start planning and we're saving. So how do we do this? And the general consensus among uh, investors and builders we've talked to is that it's probably a two to three million dollar task to be able to do that. And so we've got one sixth of that right now. So that's kind of in a nutshell, the financial picture for Heritage Christian Fellowship. And it's a very positive one. It's a very encouraging one. Um, but I think the Lord has even more for us to do in the future. So we want to continue to be faithful. And I encourage you to continue to pray how you can partner with us and we can partner together to continue to spread the gospel to the community around us. Amen? Amen. Well, there's more to ministry than money. Paul goes on in verse 5. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. Let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me for I'm expecting him with the brothers. Paul shares some personal details here and sort of uh, exposes some with regards to his other son in the faith, Timothy. And he, he, he's revealing to us some of what we covered when we covered chapter nine and that is the difficulties of gospel-centered leadership or specifically pastoral ministry. And we don't need to spend a lot of time on this. Again, we covered this in chapter 9, but there are some real sacrifices that those in those positions of leadership and the pastoral position in particular um, really just do have to deal with. Um, a lot of times your family uh, ends up making sacrifices in areas that are really foreign to other careers, to other jobs. Um, hospital visits, emergencies, deaths, weddings, things like that don't tend to follow your normal 9 to 5 work schedule. And so there are a lot of times you might get a middle of the night call or there might be a death and day off often comes with a little asterisk because when people are hurting, that's our call. And we desire to do that. I'm not explaining anything away, but, but there's legitimate challenges with regards to the pastoral ministry. And then you add to that, as we covered in chapter nine, that most in ministry feel underqualified for the work that's before them. And so there's significant challenges with regards to this, this type of work. But, but Paul mentions one in particular here that I think is worth noting, or at least for me as your pastor, would like you to understand our heart with regards to these things. And that is, he mentions that he has an inability to meet the needs of them at the drop of a hat. He says, and this is common in Paul's writing, I want to come to you. I want to see you, but... I need to go here, but this compels me here, but there's a greater work there. It's common in Paul's writings. 
Um, and, and that's been a difficult thing for me to grow through, just being transparent for myself here for a moment, as our church has grown. Because when we started out 100 people at Jewett Elementary School, I felt like I got to know everyone. And now, even just looking around the congregation right now, um, there are tons of faces here that I don't know. There's tons of faces where I know your face, but I don't remember your name. Or, you know, those things happen all the time. It is a common occurrence where I'll be at the gym or a restaurant, and I'm like, I think I know that guy, but I don't know that guy. And usually I just chicken out and don't say anything. So if you feel I'm being rude, I'm just coward. That's all. Which is maybe worse, but just saying. Um, But this is a a particular thing. And and I want to speak to you guys as leaders for just a moment here. Because Paul's talking about challenges in leadership. That this idea that I want to do this, but I have to do this. And then he describes even in particular that this thing that I do is what controls him. He, he says in particular that I want to do this work. And he says, I think it's in verse 9. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. Now, there's a verse in Revelation Chapter 3, I believe it is, it says that the Lord opens doors that no man can open and the Lord closes doors that no man can close. You guys heard that before? Everybody's heard that verse before? Now, there is a, a way of translating that and applying that to our lives that is unhealthy and unbiblical. And it's this. I've heard this said before. I've said this before in my own ignorance. But the idea is, look, if the Lord's in this, it's just going to work out. And you can carry that too far to say, okay, so if the Lord's in this, then the doors will just open. And so you take on a particular work. You take on a particular challenge. You take on a particular leadership role. And then you run into some abrasion. Or you run into an obstacle. Or the door seems shut. We have to be careful what we do in those moments. Can I just say, we got to be careful. Because this is what we can end up doing. Well, The Lord will close doors that no man can open and open doors that no man can close. And and so if he's in it, this would go well. But now I've, I've, I've reached some opposition. Seems like the door's closed. Might as well hop off of this track and go to something else because clearly the Lord's not in it. If the Lord was in it, it would work a little bit more smoothly. Man, scripture doesn't give us that, that, that truth. Can I just say? Um, now, Now that can happen. If there's a door no man can open, then maybe you should revisit things. But be careful to interpret adversaries or difficulty or problems as God's way of saying that's not what I really wanted you to do in the first place. My wife and I, you guys know, a couple years ago, went to Uganda to adopt a little girl that we had, had come to know and love through Oasis of Hope. We spent a lot of money doing that. Some of you, without even asking, just graciously even donated towards that job, towards that task. And we went all the way to Uganda, went through all the steps, hearts excited, giddy with excitement to bring that little girl over here, and then went to the courtroom and heard the judge say no, and no opportunity for appeal through just sinful corruption in the Ugandan court system. So what do you do with that? Like, was, was God just not in that? Did I miss here? Because we'd prayed for a long time about going and doing that. Was God just saying, man, I wish you would have really paid attention because you could have saved a lot of money. No, not at all. That was absolutely God's will for us to do. But, But the end result, his purpose in it was different than what we had purposed in that. Because it was through that difficulty. Our church is a different church since that day. It just is. We've grown through things. I've had the ability even as a pastor to be able to walk through difficulty with you in a way that I would have never been able to do on the other side of that. 
God has strengthened our bond with Oasis of Hope. I remember even right after that happened and we were weeping on the steps of the courtyard. I remember Pastor John from Oasis of Hope there coming to me and saying, now you know more than most what it's like to be a Ugandan and have no voice. And so it makes us want to fight harder for justice with them. It makes us want to fight harder for those who are in oppression. There was great profit that came from that. And so we have to be careful. When we take on a good work, we are guaranteed that oppression or opposition or difficulty is going to come with it, a giant heaping side of it. Um, The same people on TV that tend to be saying, give me the money so that you can get more money, also tend to talk about the fact that God wants to just make all of our paths so smooth and simple and we shouldn't have any difficulties. And if you are, that's probably a faith issue. Not true. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Paul says here, a great wide door of effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. It is a given because look, when we take on a gospel mission, when we're serving the kingdom of God, when we take on uh, 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 tasks for God, we are taking on, we're making war with the very enemy of this world, you understand? And so opposition is guaranteed. It's going to come and it can be discouraging and it can be frustrating, it can be maddening, and it can be heartbreaking. But Jesus also said, take hope, for I have what? I have overcome the world. You're going to have difficulty, but your hope and your fulfillment does not come from how well that task actually works out. Your hope always stays in me, no matter how things fall. Sometimes I'm going to have you take on a task that's going to be amazing and successful. Sometimes I'm going to have you go through things that are really difficult because I'm doing a work in you and I'm doing a work in the people around and be careful to judge success based on the world's measures of success. In fact, Heritage, I would go so far as to say a lot of times if you take on something from the Lord, the opposition that you face is probably more evidence that you're doing something for God rightly because the world is incredibly compliant when we're doing things to honor it. So just know that, but persevere in that. Persevere in that. Like Nehemiah, I wanted to go into more detail of it. We just don't have the time. I gotta finish this chapter today, but read Nehemiah. Look at the the amazing job he had of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And as he starts rebuilding the walls, all these surrounding tribes and nations are threatened by it. This guy is part of Israel. They're rebuilding their city. That's going to go badly for us. And so they attack. They seek to kill. They seek to discourage. They seek to circumvent that work in any way that they can. And one of the chief dudes in that, a guy named Sanballat, actually at one point is like, all right, I got to try a new process. And so he starts trying to schmooze Nehemiah. And he's like, Nehemiah, come on down, man. We're going to be neighbors. We're going to be boys. Let's work out a treaty here and let's get together and things will be okay. And Nehemiah says a great, great word. He says, send word to Sanballat. I am doing a great work. I cannot come down. He said, look, I don't have time for those kinds of, those kinds of obstacles. I don't have time to get caught up in that stuff. God has given me a mission and I am to stay true and faithful to the mission of God. And for us as leaders, look, opposition will come. Sometimes from within, sometimes from without. But when you know that you know that God has laid a path before you, then may that be our statement as well. I'm doing a great work. Because it's for the king of glory. I cannot come down. Amen? Amen. Let's continue on. 
He says in verse 12, now concerning our brothers Apollos, I strongly urge him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity, but be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. And now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus was the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunus and Achaeus and whatever those are pronounced by, perhaps because they have made up for your absence, for they have refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. Men in particular, can I talk to you again? Men, listen. Now picture this again. Here's Paul, the father in the faith of these people. This is his teenage son, if you will. And he's leaning in. And he wants to see them grow in maturity, grow in faithfulness, grow to be effective ministers of the gospel. He wants to see them take territory for the kingdom of God. And so in desiring for them to grow and inspired by God himself, he writes these words and he says to them first, look, be watchful. This goes back to what we just talked about. Understand, difficulty's gonna come. There are wolves among sheep. There are those who want to derail your mission. There are those who want to bring false doctrine in, who all of these things that I've just taught you, they're going to want to sway you from. Even in 1 Corinthians, the things that he deals with, sexual immorality, be watchful because the temptation's coming. Be watchful. The enemy, he roars like a lion. He's prowling around looking for those whom he can destroy. And he says, be watchful. That also translates, be awake, be alert. Know that it's there. And men, listen to me. There are forces out there, both practical, tangible, and spiritual, that want to destroy your family and your pastor dad. You are pastor dad. In the same way he's writing to this church, he writes to you and he says, be watchful. Shepherd your family. Look out for wolves. Watch for false doctrine." Watch for your family. He goes on to say, stand firm in the faith. Stand firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ and on the writings of his word. No matter what, we as Christians are in a place right now, a significant position in our history and in our Christian experience where there are massive forces, even within the church, that are begging us to step off of the foundation of the truth of the scriptures of God. Don't do it. You go, but I... I I don't want to hold to some of these things. It would just be easier if, trust me, don't do it. What did Jesus himself say? He who hears these words and does them will be like someone who has built his house upon the rock. The storm came, the rains came, great was the storm, and yet it withstood the storm. Did he not say that? And for the one who planted on a different foundation, what was the result? The house came down. Families, listen, I wish I could stand here before you like some of those on those networks and say to you that God has nothing but blessings in your future and you will never do anything but just walk on rose petals and sniff lilies and just sing and hum and it will be amazing. You'll never have a difficult day if you just follow Jesus. But the reality is, is that in following Jesus in this world, it means you're gonna have a hard time. It means difficulty will come because there's a real real war between two different kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. 
And when we come and make our household a kingdom outpost for the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's like walking into a foreign land and planting a flag right in their territory and saying, I claim this land for God. Difficulty's going to come, right? But this is part of it. This is part of it. But look, you stand firm. You let what happens happen, but you stand firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? He also says then, I like this one, act like men. Some of your translations say be courageous. I like the ESV better. Act like men. Or literally, play the man. Men, again, in particular, men, we need you. We need men to step up and to play the man. There's been so many places where Christianity through recent decades has been almost feminine in a lot of ways. And we, we haven't really looked at, we've tried to dumb men down in some areas or, or underplay them. And a lot of that is because we've seen abuses and we've seen chauvinism and we've seen all these kinds of things. But we need, in this day and age, now more than ever, we need gospel men to stand up and do gospel work. And to say, I will cover my household. I will fight for the oppressed. When, when I see injustices done, I'm not going to turn a blind eye to that. I will be the man. And I will stand there as a representative for God himself and say, this is not okay. Knowing that God himself is our strength. But he chooses to work through frailties like us. In 2 Corinthians, we're going to deal with a lot of these things with regards to God is our sufficiency. God is our strength. But he chooses to work through you. So be the man. Gospel work is for men, not boys. Be the man. He, he goes on and says, and be strong. Be strong. M much of Christianity and its focus to men in recent decades has been towards, you need to be more meek. You need to be more humble. You need to be more gentle. That's true. But we do need men to be strong. We need men to be stronger than those who are committing atrocities against others. We need men to be strong, not bullies, not abusive, but strong and courageous and willing to stand up when there's difficulties there. Women, we need women to be strong as well in those things. Those that think Christianity just wants to put a muzzle on women and then have no effect on that are sadly mistaken. He actually writes this to everyone and says, play the man, be strong. So be strong. But look, knowing that you fight for God. And as Jeremy shared with our huddle groups yesterday, we fight for God, we fight with God, and God never loses. Isn't that awesome? Think about that. God never loses, ever. Well, we might feel beat back, but even in the things that we would interpret as defeats, they're actually working something so much greater for the purposes of God down the road that even our enemies are fulfilling God's will. We fight on behalf of a king that never loses and his victory is secure. We are more than conquerors. We've already won. Praise God for that, amen? Be strong. But lest that become bullying, he says, let all that you do be done in love. Not exactly what we consider a manly strong emotion when we picture pink and red hearts and Valentine's Day and all these kinds of things. But you remember chapter 13, love's hard. The kind of love that Paul describes in chapter 13 of this book is hard and it's sacrificial. 
and it puts others first. And it says to others, I will make sure that you are cared for. That's man stuff. That's strong stuff. That's not mushy Valentine's Day stuff. And that should be the motive behind everything that we do, putting others first. We're not being strong and playing the man so that we can look tough in church. We're being strong and playing the man so that we can stand up for those who need our help, so that we can show love to others. Because that's Christ. You, you want to talk about strong? Be the God of the entire universe, confined to flesh, nailed to a cross, under the weight of all the sin of everyone else, knowing that it's true when people taunted him. If you're the son of God, just come down. And he stayed. Because greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. It's been said before, nails did not keep Jesus on the cross. Love did. Our God is strong. And he did that for our benefit. May we have the same type of love for others. Oh, there's a, that's a whole sermon. Moving on. He also says this. Lead and submit and support godly leadership. There's this continual cycle within Paul's writings that leaders lead, but leaders also submit. And everyone is submitted to godly leadership. He even says in this particular passage that we're to give recognition to such men, those who are leading the charge and doing the work of the ministry. We should all be submitted. Even in this church, I'm the pastor, but I'm submitted to the board. If I ever stop doing my job, they can fire me. We should all be in that sort of position. No one should be in a place where we answer to no one. We all, this is God's model for the church is that we are all submitted to one another and we're all leading together under the headship of Jesus Christ. And then Paul begins to close things out, verse 19. He says, the churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And so with that last line in mind, we're going to start a new practice here. I'm just joking. Dudes are like, no, I'm out. I was with you on the man stuff. No. You, you know what we can see in that? And Sam, we're running late. I'm probably just going to close this. You're good. But you know, you, know what, uh, you know what we see here in this passage is that people matter to Paul. Paul, more than any other New Testament writer, when he closes out these letters, he's always, oh, and tell so-and-so I said hi. Oh, and tell so-and-so I said what up. They're really good. Oh, and hey, make sure you tell them. And even earlier, he talks about Timothy, and he knows Timothy's a young leader who's learning to grow, but he's timid, and he's dealing with some stuff, and he's like, hey, comfort Timothy. People matter to Paul. And so even if our, our, our missions change, if, if my role here for the church now is less about having lunch with every single person at the church, and now it's more of a studying and training and leadership and all that kind of stuff, the people still have to matter. We never get to just disengage from what's going on. People matter to Paul. So much so that look how he closes this in verse 21. This is really unique. He says this, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Now, now, don't misunderstand this. Paul was using a scribe to write this whole letter up until this point. That does not cheapen what was done. It's no different than whether you wrote a letter by hand versus a computer, whatever. It was still inspired by God, and this was the method that was often used in those days. So he had a scribe there. Not to mention they didn't have a lot of autocorrect, so if you have a guy that's just skilled, use him. But Paul would be there dictating this letter. But here he is. Now, come back to the pictures. We're closing here. He, he's, he's sharing these words and he's, he's coming to the end of the letter. He knows it 
I just, I wanna get everything out. I wanna say to them everything that I wanna say. And at a certain point, he just grabs the pen. And he says, I'm writing this part. And he leans forward, he takes the pen from the scribe. And these last few verses would be written in Paul's own handwriting. It's, it's a way of saying, this is particularly personal and important. He's leaning in on these last few words. These words mean something. And what is it that he says? Verse 22, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord come. <laughs> what? What? Let all be done in love. Oh, if you don't love Jesus, you're cursed. Well, it looks like harsh language, but can I say this? I would say the exact same thing today. Those who do not love the Lord Jesus Christ are under a real and literal curse. It's the reality of it. Every man is under the curse because of the fall of man, because of our sin. Everyone's sin has condemned them to a life, and I should say specifically, a death in eternity apart from God, a place that we refer to as hell. Every man is under that curse. Creation is under that curse. That's why we have leaves fall in the fall. That's why plants die. Everything, we've talked about this a lot lately, the world has been subjected to futility because of the curse of sin on this world. And apart from the love, and as he goes on in verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. If the grace of God is not upon you, then you are under the curse. You cannot work your way out of it. You cannot tithe your way out of it. You cannot do good works enough to make your way into heaven. Apart from the grace and love of Jesus Christ, we are all under the curse. But praise God that the grace of the Lord Jesus be with us. To those who believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior, who believe that he died, that he rose again, who repent of their own sin, who understand their own fallenness, confess their sin before the Lord and turn from that sin and put our trust in Jesus Christ, and the grace of the Lord Jesus is with us. That is really good news. Is the grace of Jesus Christ with you? I don't mean like, have you gone to church your whole life? That's not going to cut it. I don't mean like, but I do tithe. I don't mean it. I mean, have you experienced the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ? Because if you're not sure or you don't know, the answer is probably no. There is an assurance that even the Holy Spirit himself testifies to our own heart that we are his children. That's in Romans. And I'm begging you, do not mess with that. Do not, don't, don't look at that and go, oh, a curse. It's a big deal. It's a devastating thing. And as glorious and majestic as heaven is, that's how dark and isolated and alone and painful and separated we will be if we die apart from the grace of Jesus Christ. I beg you, know Jesus, be known by Jesus Confess your sin to Jesus. Confess to him that, that you have fallen short of his glory. Put your trust in him, not in your efforts, not in your work, not in any of those things. And he promises he will send his Holy Spirit upon us. He will fill us with his spirit and he will save us. Amen? And for those who do so, the rains can fall down and the floods can come up, but our standing is absolutely secure in the person of Jesus Christ. And because of that, we can say, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen.
Will you stand with me? Father, we thank you for this time in this book. We thank you for how you've taught us, molded us, changed us, directed us. And Lord, we pray that your will would continue to be done in this church and in our lives as it is in heaven. God, for people that are in this room right now that have not given their lives over to you, Lord, I pray that by your grace, your spirit would rush upon them. Lord, I pray that, that, that they would feel the call to your spirit. I pray, God, you would give them the strength to shun embarrassment or ridicule or any of those things, to despise, Lord, their sin. Lord, to come forward, to pray with us, Lord, to receive your grace and to be part of the kingdom of God. And Lord, for those of us who are part of the kingdom, I pray, God, we would go forth. We would stand firm. We would be strong. We would act the man. That we would fight injustice. That we would stand on the gospel. And that we would share the good news of your soon return with those who we can talk to, Lord. I pray your blessing on everyone here. I thank you for the generosity that you've blessed this church with. We thank you that you have always provided for your church. I pray, God, that you would continue to. I pray, God, for the leadership of this church, that we would continue and even grow in our faithfulness, Lord, within every area, including finances. I pray, God, for the work you have for us in the future, Lord. I know you have good work and great opportunity for us, but with it will come great adversaries. And I pray, God, you would give us strength to endure, to know that, Lord, this is our opportunity and our privilege to suffer as you did and to identify with your sufferings. And I pray, God, for great kingdom work from this church moving forward. I pray your blessing on everyone here, Lord. Will you just cover them, protect them, and use them mightily, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said.